What is it like to be a person of color in a predominantly white evangelical church? Does fitting in require someone to change their behavior, appearance, and speech? And if so, what does that say about the church? Welcome to The Roy's Report, a podcast dedicated to reporting the truth and restoring the church. I'm Julie Royce, and joining me today is Janai Allman. Janai is a survivor of spiritual abuse in an Acts 29 church. She's also a certified trauma support specialist and has a really unique ministry writing about healing, hope, and the way forward for those who have experienced religious abuse and trauma. Janai also hosts a private online community called Wilderness Forum. This is a safe place for other spiritual abuse survivors to process their stories and find healing. In this podcast, we're going to talk about Janai's journey. We'll discuss how she came to Christ and then got involved in the Reformed Church movement, and then had one of the most painful experiences in her life when she became the target of spiritual abuse. But we're also going to talk about her unique experience of growing up biracial in Texas and serving in the white evangelical church, and how being an abuse survivor has opened her eyes to other problems in the church, like how we treat and marginalize persons of color. I know this is going to be a challenging and important discussion, and I'm so excited to have Janai on this podcast. But before we dive in, I'd like to thank the sponsors of this podcast, the Restore Conference, and Mark Horta Barrington. I am so excited to announce the next Restore Conference, June 9th and 10th at Judson University in Elgin, Illinois. Joining us for this amazing two-day event to restore faith in God and the church will be many leading abuse survivor advocates. These include our beloved speakers who have joined us before, Wade Mullen, Scott McKnight, Mary DeMuth, Lorianne Thompson, and Nagme Panahi. But we have new voices joining us as well, like trauma-informed soul care provider Kyle James Howard, Sudanese Christian activist Miriam Ibrahim, and my guest on today's podcast, Janai Amen. Yours truly will be there as well, but by far, what makes this gathering so special is you, the survivors, allies, activists, and church leaders who truly get it or want to get it. For more information, go to julieroys.com restore. That's julieroys.com restore. Also, if you're looking for a quality new or used car, I highly recommend my friends at Marcourt of Barrington. Marcourt is a Buick GMC dealership where you can expect honesty, integrity, and transparency. That's because the owners there, Dan and Kurt Marcourt, are men of integrity. To check them out, just go to buyacar123.com. That's buyacar123.com. Well, again, joining me today is Janai Amen. Janai is a Filipina-American writer and artist living in Houston, Texas. And as I mentioned, she's also a survivor of religious trauma and hosts a private online community called The Wilderness Forum. So Janai, welcome, and I'm so glad you could join me. Thank you so much for having me. Well, Janai, as I mentioned, we're going to get into what your experience was growing up as someone who's a person of color in a white evangelical space. And I really want to explore that with you. But I also want to tell your story because I know there's a a lot of people listening who have never probably heard of you or what you're doing. I know you're kind kind of new on the scene. And let me just start with how you got here Uh, which really starts with your faith story and growing up there in Texas in a non-Christian family, correct? Correct. So you grew up, your your mother was kind of nominally Catholic, is that right? Mm -hmm. And your dad? My dad, he, he did actually grow up in the church, and then he left the church years before I was born. So he 
I would say was functionally agnostic all throughout my my upbringing. So you didn't go to church at all growing up? I mean, did you have any church experience? I, I mean, I think I can count on two hands the number of times I went with my grandmother, my dad's mother, um, who was a part of a non-denominational church. It was actually kind of a charismatic non-denominational church with a lot of Pentecostal roots. And then I remember going to youth group with a friend of mine at her church throughout like middle school. And so until the time that I turned 17, that is largely my experience with any sort of organized church gathering or church service. Then when you turned 17, there was a major life event for you. Your grandmother passed away, right? Yes. So she was the one, my dad's mother, she was the one who made sure that I knew at least pieces of who Jesus was. And of course, I was a kid, so I got you know, some of the smaller stories and heard kind of peripheral of, uh, about him. But when I lost her, uh, really, I I literally got in my car one day. I was a new driver, got in my car and just drove to the church that she was a part of so that I could really, so that I could feel connected to her. Mm-hmm. And over the course of just being a part of that community, I did eventually come to a believing faith. Isn't that something? I mean, I'm thinking from your grandmother's perspective, she probably prayed for you. She probably wanted so badly for you to come to faith. And it's encouraging for me to hear stories like that because we don't know the legacy that we leave. And the older I get, I just think even after we pass away, that legacy could make a difference. (laughs) So sweet that you're tearing up. I know. I was not expecting to cry. (laughs) I was like, (laughs) I should have known. (laughs) Oh, she must have meant a great deal to you. Oh, so much. I actually, I, as you were speaking, I thought, I think it's almost her birthday. She's been gone for 20 years now and just the impact that she had on my life. I mean, I almost forget that she sowed those seeds so long ago. Um, Whenever you kind of walk through the hard waters and just the trenches of like spiritual abuse most recently, you almost forget the origin story of faith. And so hearing it from you, like being reminded of it it, right today is just actually a really huge grace. So this is a gift. Oh, that's so sweet to hear. So tell me about that church, because as I understand, like that church was very multicultural, which in Texas That's, I mean, a wonder in some ways, right? So atypical. It was a multicultural, I would say egalitarian church, but there were also some power dynamics and spiritually abusive dynamics there. But I tend to look back on that experience very fondly because it was the first found family I'd ever had. Um, And whenever you kind of come from a really hard family of origin and all of that kind of that cocktail of hardship and trauma your found family kind of means a lot to you. And it, they do, to this day, that church still means a lot to me. My husband and I were married in that church. Um, and I had a lot of, uh, you know, auntie, we called them aunties in the church, just black sisters who were mentors to me, but also like other um, white leaders and pastors. And so it was a very unique experience, particularly in the Texas South. When you say found family, what, what do you mean by, that's not a term I'm used to. It's a term that's pretty typical among those who have had or weathered like childhood trauma. But whenever you feel like your family of origin, that there are ruptures there that you've never felt secure within or that you ever felt connected to, 
one of the things a lot of people look for is, you know, we find our found family later or redeemed family, the family of God that kind of grafts you in and where you do experience that security and that stability and that attachment. And I would say, apart from my grandmother, who I was securely attached to as Mm -hmm. a child, the first church I came to faith in was kind of that first found family that I felt Mm -hmm a greater sense of belonging that I had not yet felt elsewhere. I like that term, uh, found family. And I, I'm learning, you know, it's as I'm in this space more and more, I, I learn. But this is not where my training was in, right? And I know you're trained as a trauma specialist and probably have a lot of language that I don't. So, I mean, this is completely a learning journey for me. And I appreciate people like you that share your stories and, and, and help us learn. It, it almost seems like you you went from a from a multicultural church egalitarian church somehow you became part of, and I'm, I'm trying to figure this out because you go from that to part of a very white reformed which is very complementarian right totally the other end of the spectrum right so i'm complementarian for those who aren't familiar with that term kind of the other end of the spectrum where women are considered complementary to men and don't serve in, say, pastoral positions or any teaching of men. So how did you end up from that church to getting caught up in the Reformed movement? So my husband and I, we moved from our small town in Texas, which is about 80 miles. It's really close to the Texas-Louisiana border, about 80 miles east of Houston. We moved from that area to a Houston suburb. And the church we landed in originally is a sister church to that multicultural church. And so we were a part of that church for a few months and we got, we became very connected to the young adult ministry going on there. And which whenever you would see the Sunday services, it was very typical of what I experienced in my hometown. And then you went to the youth group and the young adult services, and that was the reformed. Like they, for some reason were housed under the same church but that young adult youth pastor was the one who uh, was sent out to go and plant a church and so he planted a church in the inner city and he partnered with the x29 network in order to make that happen and so it didn't feel like it was a big transition at the time only later when it whenever the church plant became like a an actual church and the governance was more shaped, I realized this is a very different church. And whenever visitors were coming, I realized this is not as diverse as what we had previously experienced. Before we started recording, you were saying how your name, Janai, is a Chinese name, even though you're Filipina, right? Yes. But you wanted to be Brittany as a kid. I would have given anything to find my name on like a coffee mug at like a souvenir shop or a keychain or something. I just wanted a normal name that I could find elsewhere. I mean, you have a beautiful name. I think Janai is gorgeous. Yeah. I always wanted a different name. (laughs) I had the name at Julie. Everybody has Julie, right? But yeah, I mean, is that even part of it, of this, this idea of code switching, wanting to fit in, wanting to be instead of experiencing where, hey, we love that you're Filipino. What is that like to be on sort of that side of things? I also want to say, like, I know it's it's a normal thing for so many people to feel like they don't fit in. 
It's just, I have learned how hard and how difficult it is to fit in when you don't look like you fit in and when you don't even have a name that fits in. And so I would say that like code switching, because I am biracial and I have a Filipina mom who speaks uh, English, but it's very, it's broken English. You can obviously tell she has an accent and she's had that accent all of my life. And I, I feel like I've always had to move between the spaces and to and adjust a little bit so that I could better communicate to whatever culture I was existing in. Whatever the predominant culture was is the way I, I kind of chameleoned myself to be a better communicator in that space. So co- code switching in and of itself, and if anyone doesn't know what code switching is, it, it me- it's essentially moving between cultures and becoming a better communicator. But code switching becomes negative when it is required for belonging uh, among a predominant culture. And so in order to belong to the, the majority culture, you have to deny some of the truth, the culture that you're inherently a part of. So code switching isn't inherently bad. It's just awful whenever it becomes kind of the password to you know, resources and belonging. And um, it, it's really kind of nefarious in that way. So code switching has inherently just been a part of my life growing up because I had a very multicultural household and uh, a a non-Christian multicultural household for one. And then I would go to schools and in public school, it was very, it was predominantly white and almost every single, I would say almost every single one of my classmates were a part of a local church. It's a Texas South. So the question is normally, what church do you go to? Not if you go to church at all. And so I'm kind of not in the American evangelical culture as a kid, but I'm kind of rubbing up against it for all of my life. By the way, I had friends who were from the South and they said, if you live in the South, people talk about you if you don't go to church. If you live in the North, people talk about you if you go to church. So, yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, yeah. I kind of understand that as a churchgoer in the North, it's reverse of, of that. But go ahead. It was not atypical for me to hear someone call me a heathen because I didn't go to church. Like wow. I've heard that. Sometimes it was a joke, but sometimes under the joke, it was like the truth and they were taking a dig at you. Um, as a kid, you just hear it as a joke. But as an adult, you're reflecting back on it. And I'm like, that was actually really ugly to hear. Um, it really didn't bring you any closer to Christ. No, it didn't. <laughs> it didn't. It took my grandmother dying for me to come to Christ. It didn't at all happen because people took digs at me or dunked on me um, by virtue of just my upbringing. But I think because that was the environment I grew up in, being in a predominantly white space, even after having experienced multicultural spaces and evangelical spaces, being in a predominantly white space did not feel like new territory. It just felt like I've done this before. Hmm. And I've, I've, I've learned uh, how to do this before really well, because that's what it took for me to survive and for me to belong, um, for me to kind of prove myself that, hey, I belong in this space. Um, I, I hope I'm white. En- I'm, I'm only half white, but I hope I'm white enough to exist in this space. Julie, it's so funny. Even now I can tell that I am suppressing my Southern accent um, because I was, I grew up a Filipina kid with a Southern accent. And that was one of the first things that had to go whenever I came to Houston, because it was like, 
the affect of being a Filipina American with a Southern twang was just so, I was just so, I felt so otherworldly. I remember that being um, a part of our early church planting conversations. But I felt like as a Filipina American existing in this space, it it wasn't, it was kind of the same song, you know, 20th verse. I've done this before. This isn't my first rodeo. Um, and I, and I think I was welcome. I think everyone truly believed that they welcomed me in that space. I don't think anyone, and I don't think I knew how to teach them how to make space for all of me because I had never made space for all of me. If that makes any sense, I, uh, I don't, I think a lot of people really do want to welcome ethnic minorities into their spaces. I don't think they know how. I think that's very true. I think there's huge blind spots and we, we don't know what we don't know sometimes. Could you give a specific where you felt like, mm, I can't reveal this about myself? I remember uh, we were at our former church when the 2016 election was going on. And I feel like that was absolutely one area where I thought, I don't know if it's safe for me to talk. I mean, I have a, a mother who immigrated to the United States in the 80s mm -hmm. and the rhetoric around immigrants, even within the American evangelical church, even within a church where I felt love and belonging and that that same sense of found family, um, I realized my mom can't visit with us on Sundays when she comes to visit our home because I don't think people would be welcoming to her. And so I just don't share that. And no one ever asked. I think everyone, sometimes they would know that they, my mom was coming to stay and they would say, well, why don't, why doesn't she come to, you know, our church gathering on Sunday? And I think I would normally just say she's busy. And I, I didn't have the emotional capacity to say, hey, you're not really a welcoming people to ethnic minorities and it's not safe for her to be here. That's heartbreaking to hear that. It's awful. I mean, especially when they they also preach grace and belonging and being grafted in. It's, it's like, but do they really believe it? I have a daughter-in-law who's Hispanic, which has been a wonderful experience for our family. And learning where things come across and hurt her. And I think my political stance has changed over over time. And certainly uh, things that I probably would have been much more hardline conservative on, I'm much softer on yeah. now. I don't think a lot of my beliefs have changed, but the way I hold them has changed a yes. lot. And I think the rhetoric, though, the rhetoric surrounding immigration. And I will say, even back in the days when I was working at Moody Radio, super, super conservative, um, even listening to conservative talk, I was appalled by what I heard. And and that's one, like, even if you go, I don't, I think I've removed a lot of the, the stuff from a long, long time ago that I used to blog about just because it's, you know, more political and not very relevant. But yeah, I always thought on immigration was the one thing that I was like, where, how does this square with like the Old Testament welcoming the stranger? And yeah. How does that drive? And and I understand, you know, I know there's people listening who, you know, we need borders and we have to have some. Yeah. OK. But put yourself in the shoes of somebody who has immigrated. Do they feel loved? Yeah. Do they feel welcome? Do they feel like we value them and we want their contributions because what they bring to the table is so incredibly necessary? Do we do we want to be an all white space? Do we think we're better? Do we realize how superior this sounds? I mean, the yeah. whole thing. It's it's appalling. And, and yeah, I'm 
so sorry. No, it's so, I mean, I wish I could tell, and I, 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 if I have a moment, I would love to say this. My mother became a citizen. So she did, like, she did everything right. And to this day, like, there are people who will mistreat her or be ugly toward her, Mm. even though she, she followed the rules. Like, how much is enough? Like, what is enough to belong here um, after you've checked all the boxes. But the thing, I, I think what so many people don't know is, you know, when Christ says to love the least of these, to like care for the wid- widow and the orphan and those who are going without for the hungry and for the thirsty, I don't think people understand, like, especially within the Philippines, how much need there is, so much need. And the reason why she left and why she immigrated was to take care of her family to this day. I mean, 30 almost 40 years later, she is sending money to her family in the Philippines because they just don't have the access to resources that people in the United States do. And of course, like I want people to, I I, I believe in legalities and, you know, being uh, cautious and safe. I'm also for people being able to take care of the kids in their very own country. Um, And I know that just by some stroke of luck, had she not immigrated, I might be one of those children as well. Um, and so I, I, that's really what I hope a lot of people know is that they're not here to take any power. They're just here to take, immig- so many immigrants are here just to take care of their families. That's baseline. And that's so common for a, an immigrant to be sending back money to support their family. And if I were in their shoes, if my kids were starving, or if I, you know, if my family members weren't able to have the basic necessities, would I want to do everything I possibly could to to do it for them? Absolutely. And for us not to recognize the blessing that we've been given through no merit of our own. We just happen to be born in a country where, yes, there's been some wonderful things done and people did earn it and did, did build something beautiful here. But at the same time, we were born into blessing. And if, if we don't understand that, and if we don't have a heart to give that to others, I just... Wow, I mean that's that's like a Christian ethic. So if if you're missing that, you're you're kind of missing the gospel. Yeah, it's it's just loving your neighbor. And that's the second most important <laughs> second important most important commandment. Okay, well we're going to come back to that. I just want to pause it for a minute and continue your story. Um so you were 11 years at this church plant. Yes. From uh, 2009 to 2020. So you go from um from this church with your what was your youth pastor uh, to plant this this church in Houston. Eventually, you go on staff for like the last what three, three or four years. three mm-hmm. years that you were there, and things kind of went sideways. Oh. It, it sounds like and and once you came on staff, I'm wondering too how much of this was just uh, you know you you see behind the curtain right you begin to see how the sausage is made and yes it, it can be disheartening and but enlightening process. So d- tell me about that. Yeah, we so we planted this church in 2010 in the urban core of Houston, quote unquote. Like we went to the inner city. Um but then in 2012 we become ordained deacons and we serve as small group leaders within the church for 6 years and this is prior to me going on staff. And so I felt like I kind of knew the, I had like the DNA of the church kind of, in, like I, I I got the church. I understood what we were trying to do. And by 2013, though, our founding pastor left. Um, it was incredibly sad. 
we were told that he had health issues. And so I thought, okay, great. Well, at least he's going to get help, um, the help that he needs in another uh, state. So we are without a pastor for a year and another pastor comes in that we hire, we interview several and another pastor comes in from the Dallas area uh, from a very known A29 church in Dallas. And because our church was so tired and so worn out, we were just grateful to have another leader at the helm. That was, I believe, 2014. And then three years later in 2017, I come on staff. And I, at this point, I know the people on staff very well. It's a very small staff of six or seven people. Most of them I'd been to their weddings or held their kids or they held my kids. It was very, very tight knit. Um, even with the lead pastor, his wife and I were friends. Our kids were the same age. Like I, I would have said I'd known them for a very long time. But everything that could have gone wrong did go wrong. The first day started with yelling during a Bible study. I, it was right before like Christ-likeness on the book of Luke. And the, the, <laughs> the Bible study was supposed to, the idea of the Bible study was, it was my first day. So what we're going to do is build cohesion as a support staff. None of the pastors were there. It was a, a male executive director and uh, many support staff females. And we were going to do this Bible study. And I just thought, like, if it's cohesion that we're looking for, but it's yelling before we even pray or read, there's yelling. Um, what was the yelling about? Like, So uh, it, this is a volunteer uh, staff Bible study. Uh, it started an hour technically before work started. And so I got to work 55 minutes early, but five minutes late. Um and another co-work, female coworker was a minute late after me. And that is kind of what triggered him. And I had known this man for a while. I helped him and his wife kind of decorate their house. We traded so many personal conversations. This was really, it was shocking. I thought I am, I must be reading the room incorrectly. Either that or is this normal? I don't know. So you're yelled at for being five minutes late to work. Mm -hmm. And the yelling went on for like 10 minutes. So it wasn't like it, a time saving maneuver. It, it went on for a while. And so I it was it was a mess. But after 10 minutes, we read Luke one and we talked about Luke one together. And I, I'm pretty sure I didn't say anything else for the rest, of the, or at least for the rest of the Bible study. I didn't say anything else. And so. Yeah, that was day one. And from there, it just kind of, that was the foundation upon which everything else was built and started crumbling and falling apart. Wow. So the spiritual abuse, I, I know part of it was, it sounded like you were given unrealistic expectations. And when you didn't, when you didn't reach these unrealistic expectations, it sounds like they came down pretty hard. Yes. But, I mean, was that kind of mixed with some sort of spiritual rhetoric, you know, you're just not committed enough? Or, I mean, how how did that abuse play itself out besides, my gosh, you come five minutes late and you get yelled at for 10 minutes? Yeah, the essentially embarked on a very, it was a multi-million dollar capital campaign that started just after I came on staff. And um, I was doing the accounting and the finances um, I was doing communication, social media, internal and external communication, all communication with members. And I was doing uh, facility maintenance and administration, 
uh, gosh, benefits administration for our staff, HR, like all of those things. It's multiple departments. Um, and at some point I start pushing back and saying, I can't have my job description change again. You can't add anything else to that. Like I, uh, this is a full pot at some point, like I'm going to boil over and this is just not going to work anymore. And whenever I would push back, um, typically I would, oh gosh, I remember putting so much emotional energy into any sort of not even a confrontation, but just a discussion about like, hey, I understand that I came to the staff with a lot of preconceived notions that maybe were wrong on my part. But here is where I, I feel like I can't trust myself with you and how you oversee my work. But here's my hope in moving forward and realizing that uh, any anything that I said or did was uh, perceived as I hate this person's leadership. And I thought that's not what I said, though. I don't think anyone ever used scripture against me to me in a conversation, mm -hmm. but then you would hear the Sunday sermon and realize this is really, I mean, it's all correct, but it also feels really pointed to what's going on behind the scenes with the staff. Mm -hmm. And I am super confused. Or I would hear personal stories that I would share during our staff communication about we would ask each other how our family lives are going and just and just realizing some of these personal communications that were just between us as a staff ended up in the sermons as well as if like my story was cannon fodder for what needed to be written that week in addition to the conflict and I just thought like I feel like I am a part of the like the sermon is for everyone but I definitely felt like there were fingers pointed at me also. And so I, I know that some people in their stories have scripture overtly used against mm -hmm. them to their face. I don't think mine, I think most of the instances where I experienced spiritual abuse was very covert. Yeah, the overt stuff is so much easier. The, the covert stuff is a little more insidious and crazy and making. It is crazy making. And I've heard that before from other people. Like uh, I know a former longtime elder at Harvest Bible Chapel when he left and then he listened to James McDonald's sermon and he like described something. He said he didn't even describe it accurately. You know, that's what he said to me. Um, but uh, but yeah, I was like, oh, my word, that's me. That's what he, that's how he's painting me. Oh, my word. And 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 really as an evil person. And that was him. And yeah, that makes it unbelievably difficult. And I think too, I don't know what it's like to be a man, but I will say as being a woman, I think we naturally look to our male pastors as, you know, often we ascribe them maybe more authority in our life than we should, but it's natural. Like I've been there and I've been there where it takes a really long time for me to say, wait, what he did was wrong. That was not okay. And what, how, the way he treated me was not okay. Yet in the back of your mind, you always have, oh, I really want their affirmation. <laughs> I, I really, I, and, and it's, it's so very damaging to the soul. And the thing is, is I got that affirmation so often. A few months later, we um, had a different meeting. It was uh, my pastor at the time. He was on a sabbatical when I came on staff. And when he came back from sabbatical, his first day back, before we uh, like really start working together, we had had a blow up staff meeting where I realized, oh, 
the conflict is more than just one executive director. It includes the pastoral team and everyone kind of jumped on this lead pastor and had so many thoughts to say. And this is just my first time in this dynamic thinking what's going on. And later in the day, he would say, hey, he came up to me personally and said, hey, I am going to upset you. I'm just letting you know there's going to be times where I let you down and I'm going to need you to give me grace. And I thought, well, of course, that's what we do. And only later would I realize, I don't think he planned to mistreat me. I don't know. But I think he knew that there were deficits in his life that he was unwilling to acknowledge. And instead of like correcting and like growing in those areas, the expectation was for me to just kind of grin and bear it. Um, and that became the tenor of the the entirety of my time there. Hmm. And it, it's hard to be a good boss, you yeah. know, especially if, if you start something or if it's really you're, you're passionate about it. You give tons and tons of hours to it. You you work overtime. You sometimes work on weekends. You can't expect your employees to do that. <laughs> Just, I mean, you really can't. And yet, yeah, that's that's common. That is yeah. common. And I, the flattery, which was a part of it too, the mm. um, you're really good at your job. I've never, I've never been told I was bad at my job. Mm. Um, I was so good at my job. But when things kind of started crumbling and falling apart and I was burning out, like burning out in glorious flames, I was crying. I remember telling them, like, you keep telling me I'm good at my job and I keep telling you there's too much of my job to do. Can't you understand? Like, if I'm doing such a good job, can you see it's killing me because there's mm -hmm. too much on my plate? Mm -hmm. And they just couldn't see that. They thought if you could knuckle down and do it, then you must be able to do it. Mm -hmm. And it was the culture of just do more, be more, try more. Um, it was never like you're enough to begin with. Mm -hmm. So you ended up leaving, and I'm sure that was a grueling process. It was. And when you left, my guess is you lost a lot of that community. Every single person, I think maybe one to two friendships exist still from that church after 11 years. It's, it's brutal. Awful. I've been through it a couple of times. I was at Moody Radio for over 10 years at one or two that yeah. I'll still maybe be friendly with. But, you know, for the most part, I'm a pariah there because I blew the whistle. Mm -hmm. um, on what was going on there. We've had stuff go on at, at our church where there was you know, mishandling of sexual abuse. Now we're in a house church. Fortunately, I will say, I think maybe the maturity of the people, uh, you know, more of those relationships have stayed. But I think the more dysfunctional a system is, the less people are able to continue those relationships because that system sees you as disloyal wants to label you as a slanderer or a gossip or, you know, they have to somehow vilify you to minimize your voice because God forbid people believe that what you're saying is true and they actually have to repent of something. Yeah. And so you become the problem instead of them acknowledging the problem. I listened to a podcast where you said it's a relational wilderness. Yeah. And, and it's so painful to be in that wilderness. And yet in that wilderness is where you began writing, I think, for your own healing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And yet it became a balm for other people. So how did that happen 
And it sounds like it happened completely organically. It did. It. <laughs> so we left our church in the actually the the meeting that I had with my elders when I um, they kept saying transitioning out like we're transitioning you out of your role. And it's my husband who works in corporate America who said, where are they transitioning you? Nowhere. They're firing you. They're getting rid of you. They're just making it look pretty. In that meeting that we had, it was the very first Monday of COVID lockdown. Oh, wow. I know. It was. Uh, so I think to some degree, everyone was entering a very relational wilderness. I don't think I was alone in that. Um, but with the distance became that there was also an increased silence. So I think people actually tried to connect and call one another. Mm-hmm. That did not happen with me. So it was uh, alone, like lonely and quiet. And this is the kicker, uh, my transitioning out because I was the administrative manager and my name was on all of the bank documents and passwords. And I had all of those things. I had a very long transition out. So I was working for two more months after I was technically fired. Hmm. And I remember thinking, I'm not, I'm not happy that the pandemic's here, but I'm really happy that I don't have to open the church building and smile, Hmm. like pretend to be happy for all of these people while inwardly I'm dying. Um, And so anyway, we left our church and I actually tried to, I applied for, I can't tell you how many jobs I applied for in the middle of 2020, which was the worst year that anyone could have ever tried (laughs) to transition or find work when everything had just shut down. And I was so despondent or disheartened. And I was, I just, felt like my my resume is bloated for ministry. I don't think I want to do any sort of ministry work anymore. But any of these corporate jobs, like I just feel like I don't fit either. Like I I don't I never fat, fit fit at my church and I don't fit in the corporate world because I don't have a corporate resume. And so I thought like I turned to my husband and I said, "What would it look like if I just tried writing?" And do you think we have the finances to give me some time to be able to do that? And my husband, who is a saint, literally, he should be canonized um, (laughs) the day that he dies. He said, yeah, do it. Like, I have no qualms. You Mm. should do it. And that was August of or September of 2020. And then I was I thought, like, well, how do you how does one become a writer? What do you do to do this? Um, I've always been a fairly creative person. I liked doodling and drawing and loved art in school. And so I thought like, this is just another creative endeavor. Let me try to put pieces together, but this time the pieces are words Mm -hmm. to help really me make sense of what was happening. And as I started putting those pieces together and just kind of sending them out on Instagram, I realized it resonated with other people that they they may not have experienced spiritual abuse or that might not be the word that they identify with, but they have also felt like a, a pariah um, having been divorced and feeling mm. like they don't fit within the church culture, c- culture or dealing with a chronic illness and feeling so misunderstood within the churches or misunderstood particularly with the mask mandates and saying like, I can't go to a church building if people aren't wearing masks, because if I contract it, I will be in peril. Um, A lot of people started connecting with the work, I think just in a variety of different ways. And despite my using spiritual abuse and religious trauma, it reached a lot of other people. It reached people who were deconstructing, which that's never been a term that I've heavily identified with. I think because I didn't grow up in the culture, I didn't feel like there was very much to tear down. 
but I, I started reaching people and they started reaching out and sharing their stories with me. And I thought there's a lot of, a lot of hurting people out here and I get it. I get it. I really do. So I, I just started connecting with them and just hearing their stories and realizing like in my being able to hear their story and that some of them hearing mine, there was actual healing, healing happening. Like that was almost the hands and feet of Jesus at work, even online. I think that's very true. And I know I've heard that even about this podcast where people can hear stories that it just becomes so healing and so affirming. Like to have somebody validate your story and validate your experience is is huge. And I think there is so much healing in coming together. And you started an online, like a private online community, right? How did that come about? I just realized there's a lot of people who want to connect with other people. And so in the beginning, a lot of them were messaging me. And over the course of time, I realized this is, I wish I could connect this person with this person because I think they would really like each other or this person with this person. And I realized I, I'm not going to give each other their uh, information, but I thought if they would want to join a private space where they could naturally connect with one another and I didn't have to necessarily be a mediator, they could do that. And so I opened, it's a on the Discord app or the platform where you can kind of create like a server, which is essentially just chat rooms. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, they've connected with them, each other online. We kind of have some ground rules where like what is shared on Discord stays on Discord. But sometimes they'll share their stories of how their churches have hurt them. But then other times they'll talk about like cooking recipes or like other different things. We It doesn't necessarily have to be hard things all the time. Or they'll talk about, you know, some beautiful photo that they saw or they took or anything fun. So I mean, it was just kind of like a private space where they could just meet others where they didn't have to explain, over explain themselves. Like they were meeting other people who just got it. Hmm. That's interesting you say that because that's how we started in 2019, how the Restore Conference got started was just, I mean, I'm a journalist, but I met all these people in, in, reporting on what happened at Harvest Bible Chapel and then reporting what's, what was happening at, at Willow Creek. And, you know, I, I'm in the Chicago area and I just met person after person. Actually, we met in person prior to Harvest was like the big first investigation after the Moody one uh, that I reported on. And, and we did get together and prayed together and, and prayed that there, you know, that there would be repentance for those who were living in sin and leading. So we already had uh, some community there, but I knew there was there was just so much hurt and so many people who were disconnected from the church. And it was just kind of like, wow, we just need a space where like people can gather. And, and, and so that first, I remember that first one in 2019, so powerful. And it's funny because I was like, well, we have to have people there, you know, to pray for people because they're so hurting. And we had... Uh, so I recruited several people that I knew, just mature believers who loved and knew how to pray for people. And we had prayer ministers. And what I found out is now the prayer ministers were there, like they're sitting next to you, you know, and and people were just ministering to each other. It was just this this glorious community. Because of COVID, we couldn't meet again till 2022. And you came, I didn't, didn't know you in May. But you came and, and were part of this. And interestingly, I will say the first one was almost, I'd say, 75, 80% Chicago area people. The second one, there were people there from 44 states and two provinces of Canada. So the, the way this, this has grown as a movement, I mean, despite the fact that we had to take 
three years off because of COVID has been amazing. Uh, we, we have an, another one coming up June 9th and 10th. People can mark their calendars now. We'll be announcing more about that soon. But yeah, there were some some things you loved about it, but you also had a critique for it. So let's start with the good <laughs> before we go to that. What did you see happening there that that you loved that you thought was was beautiful? Yeah, I will say personally, the probably the most impactful thing that I experienced was the people that I had connected with online. I got to actually hug some of them that I had become friends with. Um, which is so funny. I, ha- I laugh about this all the time. In middle school, when the internet was kind of coming of age and your teachers and your parents are telling you, don't meet people, on- don't give out personal information, don't meet people on the internet. And I feel like <laughs> that's all I do now is meet people on yeah. the internet. Yeah. But getting to hug um, the necks of friends and just like laugh with them. There was one night we were um, at the restaurant at the hotel and the laugh, I was laughing so hard. I was crying and I just realized I have not done this. I think in years with people who um, my defenses could come down a little bit, we were just laughing and being silly. It was that was meeting the people there was inarguably the most beautiful thing. And then hearing the stories, I mean, getting to hear from, you know, experts like Dr. Diane Langberg, um, Dr. Scott McKnight. I mean, all of these titans whose books actually meant all their books came out in 2020 almost as if god knew that i needed those books like the months after Hmm. um having left our church and gleaning their words and getting to hear them articulate them to me in person was a gift Uh, getting to hear laurianne thompson and her story in person and her her both her ferocity and her gentleness and seeing it uh, like in her person Mm -hmm. I thought like that's what I want to embody like I want to I don't want to lose my gentleness but I also know that there's a fire within me that it's been kindled within me um, because I know what justice is now after experiencing so many injustices and so getting to experience and hear their wisdom and receive it in person was a gift, a huge gift, a, a really big gift. And um, I left feeling full after mm. after the Restore conference. Mm. Well, even though I couldn't be there in person, mm. which was painful, um, but I got to meet with people, the same sort of thing, people that I've, sources for my stories, like, you know, they feel like sisters by the time you're done. I mean, you get close yeah. and to be able to meet them in person and to be able to meet, like you said, there's there was a dinner we did on Thursday night before the conference with people that are never met that, you know, had become close through Twitter, through that community. It's, it's amazing what, I mean, this is the most beautiful redeeming thing, I think, on social media is some of this stuff going on. I mean, for all of the horrible things that happen on social media, God is using it. Too. Yeah. And and it's it's so beautiful to see. And and one thing I heard from a lot of people too that they loved is that the speakers, usually speakers come and go and speakers stay because yeah. they they love you. They're part of you. You know, yeah. this is their community, you're their people. I mean, it's just uh I, I love it. I, I, I absolutely love that. Yeah, you did have a critique and it's one that we're going to address. And I'm I think we're gonna do a lot better this time. Um, but it's a huge blind spot that we've had, which is regarding the fact that there there wasn't more diversity. We we did have some some persons of color, but but you're right. It was predominantly white. And I think 
You know, it's interesting because I was just talking to Nagme Panahi yesterday, and we were talking about the, the overlap between abuse and spiritual abuse in the church and then the persecuted church, you know, and how there's there's a similar experience going on there. And I think the same thing with marginalized persons. I think there's an overlap, and I think there's a, a natural empathy for those who've been through abuse to be like, oh, oh, this is how you feel. Okay, I get it because, you know... I've kind of been there, but but talk about that and why, how we failed, how we can do better, why it's important. I didn't share this within the story of my former church um, because I wasn't alive to it yet. But a few months after I had left that church, I connected with a coworker who was still a friend who also had left that church. She resigned, and she she told me, um, "I know that your story and all that you experienced and what they've done to you. I know that you believe it was largely a gender issue and nothing else, but she said, you were also the only minority on staff. And I don't want to overlook that. And she's a white woman. And she had to point this out to me. Like I had so erased myself and that part of my identity that I couldn't see it anymore, but she saw it for me. And I realized, oh yes, the only woman of color on staff was the one that was forced out while everyone else was kind of given other opportunities and I was not. Hmm. And so as I was kind of coming alive to that reality and like re- like registering for Restore and really excited to be a part of that, I've I've got my ethnic heritage kind of on undercurrent in the background and back to thinking, you know, how would my mother feel in this environment? How would she receive any sort of like speech or talk on power? And how would she respond to the pieces of advice that we are given or that we hear? Or And I would just think like th- this lands on people of color differently. Mm-hmm. Um, it's almost like we, it's hard to hear about power dynamics and being taught about power dynamics from a a white person or a white evangelical when like generations of our family's history have suffered under those power dynamics. And so I think it's just a different, um, I, what was said was true, absolutely 100% true. But I think whenever, especially when you're talking to African-Americans whose generational trauma exists because of marginalization and uh, of slavery and of racism, I just think discussions of power and power dynamics lands on these populations differently. Mm-hmm. Um, you are also like not telling them anything that they didn't know, but it's kind of like whenever we we tell people, you know, after having experienced spiritual abuse, you need to use your voice and stand up. And but you can't kind of say that to a, a black person or an indigenous person or a person of color when using their voice often gets them into further harm and abuse. And mm-hmm. um, and we, we've seen the news story. So it, it's almost like you have to approach the conversation differently or understand that we can have these conversations, but there's also limits to our knowledge. And so like, I know that, you know, my lane is only, uh, only speaks to this and the limitations of my knowledge exclude these things. Um, and I don't, I, I, I believe everything that was said was said with wisdom during the conference. I could just see, I would be interested in hearing what, um, African-American and black American, like sisters in the audience, like what they would think and uh, hearing from their voices as well. As a biracial person, I'm kind of 
towing the line of like, I'm pretty sure it would be heard like this, or uh, I'm pretty sure this lands differently. But hearing from my Black sisters and their thoughts on that, like I know that they bring different um, wisdom to the table on how, especially how power dynamics and trauma and it just lands. I mean, when we're talking about spiritual abuse and how scripture is used to justify atrocities, I mean, that was the entire slave movement and how churches were complicit in that and how the SBC was even created and branched off because they wanted to justify slavery. Um, we have to acknowledge that spiritual abuse, it's new to the modern day conversation, but it's not at all new as an ideology or a method. It's been in practice for a long time. It's just remained unnamed and unhealed for a very, very long time. It's sad to say, but I mean, I think it's true that until you've been through something like that, mm -hmm. you, you just don't get it. And I'm not saying that it can't be gotten because I think it has to. And I, I know we, I know there were pastors there who have never been through it and just wanted to experience and hear how people who have been spiritually abused or sexually abused in a religious context, how that feels for them and, and understand their experience. And, and I've heard back from some of those pastors who were just like, wow, that was hard because they said, like, I, I kind of felt like, can I tell people I'm a pastor? <laughs> like, yeah, because they've been hurt by religious authorities. Right. I mean, and, and I get that. And I really want pastors to be there. I know we had like a number of seminarians there, too. And I, I, that, that heartens me because I think it, it begins to end when we begin to understand how things happen. And like you said, even that A29 church you were in they probably weren't meaning to be abusive. I'm so glad for people like you and Kyle Howard and, you know, other voices really speaking into some of these issues who also understand abuse. I, I think it's super helpful. So my commitment, uh, I think you'll see a, a very different lineup. Not different. There's a lot of people coming back to the, the next Restore who were at the last one, but there's going to be a lot more diversity at this year's conference and and hoping, you know, you can be a part of it, too. Yeah. I, I, I love what you're doing. I know you have a book coming up, right? Yes, it's being, it's currently being pitched right now. So we'll see. That's an exciting process. It is. Really, the hope is that the book just makes it into the right hands. It doesn't need to make it into all the hands, just the right hands of the people who need it. And as far as Restore, I want you to be encouraged that the work you, you're doing matters. And I think the, the, probably the, the most encouraging thing is hearing that you are willing to learn and grow. I think that's all we really want to hear from our pastors is that they are willing to learn and grow and we don't hear those things. And it's not that we expect anyone to be perfect. It's just that they are willing to make incremental small changes that point to goodness. And even with the next restore, I'm not expecting it to be perfect. I am expecting it to just be faithful. You know, but before I let you go, uh, I do want to give you just an opportunity. I think one way, obviously, that you've, you've mentioned we can change is just by having those those voices up front in our churches, in our conferences, in everything we're doing to really intentionally do that. And I think it does have to be intentional because we have to understand that we're in a cultural context and it it takes effort. Like, we don't mean to exclude diverse voices, but how many friends do we have of color, you know? And unless we like do that intentionally, it, it's probably not going to happen. So what are some things that we can do 
if we want to really grow in this area and become a space, whether it's in the church or just our our relational gatherings, whatever, to to really welcome those voices and, and understand a little bit better and allow someone like like you, someone who's biracial who comes in to fully be who they are without having to accommodate our our cultural context. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, I mean, any change starts with the person. So uh, I was just talking to another friend of mine and she, what she said was essentially like, you need to start looking for voices in your personal life who you're willing to listen to. If not a friend that you can connect with, then like, what are you reading? What what authors are you reading? What mm. information are you allowing to impact you? Um, and there's an, t- so many great books by BIPOC individuals that speak beautifully of theological truths and God's goodness. And they are the one, they are the voices that I've been primarily learning from lately. And uh, in doing that, you start to kind of gain empathy and you gain language because you're ga- you're understanding their language that they're writing with and if you do have a friend may like connect with them ask them like how can i learn more i mean you have to be brave you have to bravely ask like how do i make space for those who don't look like me how do i make space how do i ask questions without being awkward is it okay to be awkward um how do i ask like about their ethnic experience um, and how can I make it safe for them to share because so many of them do not know that it's safe to share with people. And so really learning what it is to become a safe person who's willing to hear hard truths um, is kind of priority numero uno. Um, learning how how can I not become defensive when another person who does not look like me communicates their story and it kind of pings the guilt within me. I think that is that is a that's a lifelong work. So that's a lifelong work for everyone. That's a lifelong work for me. Um, but I think it is a a work worth doing. I think it's learning to love your neighbor. Absolutely, it is. And if we don't learn it this side of eternity, you know, we're going to be spending the rest of eternity with every tribe, every nation, every tongue, right? I mean, so you better, we better get used to it now because we're going to have an awful lot of diversity in heaven. Uh, I just appreciate you, Janai. I appreciate your voice. I appreciate your uh, theological grounding, which I've heard in, in a lot of what you've written and a lot of what you've spoken. And I just appreciate your gracious heart and uh, helping us grow. So thank you. Thank you so much, Julie. I really, I really enjoyed this today. So thank you. Yeah, me too. And thanks so much for listening to The Roy's Report, a podcast dedicated to reporting the truth and restoring the church. I'm Julie Roy's. And just a reminder that we're able to do this podcast and all of our investigative work at The Roy's Report because of the support of people like you. If you appreciate our work here at The Roy's Report, would you please consider donating to help us continue? And this month, we're especially looking to increase our monthly supporters so we can expand our coverage. If you sign up to give $25 a month or more, we'll send you our new clear glass Roy's Report mug. And we hope that every time you use it, you'll be reminded to pray for us and our work to promote truth and transparency in the church. To sign up and get your mug, just go to julieroys, spelled R-O-Y-S dot com slash donate. Again, that's julieroys dot com slash donate. Also, just a quick reminder to subscribe to The Roy's Report on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube. 
That way you'll never miss an episode. And while you're at it, I'd really appreciate it if you'd help us spread the word about the podcast by leaving a review. And then please share the podcast on social media so more people can hear about this great content. Again, thanks so much for joining me today. I hope you were blessed and encouraged.